VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly again today as we uh, wrap up a rollicking, busy week. So uh, anything that's on your mind, anything that, uh, you know, you're driving around and something comes in your head and you say, well, how come nobody's ever talked about this? How come these things that are affecting my life or the lives of the people around me have not been publicly discussed or raised? Well, here is your opportunity to do so. Friday is, uh, we used to call it the traditional Friday free-for-all. Come on with it. Uh, give us a call. And uh, as happened yesterday, relatively uh, quiet day. People a little bit reticent about calling in. But, of course, as always happens, boom. Last fin- 15 minutes of the show, people waiting and left uh, hanging at the end of the program. So uh, if you want to call in, now is your opportunity to do so. And we'll get you in the queue and we'll get you on the air to talk about what you want to talk about. Well, as you just heard Brian Medor read in VOCM News just a moments ago, the uh, lone conservative MP from this province looking for answers from the other liberal MPs as to why the federal government making it so much tougher for people to qualify for EI and in some cases um, draw reduced benefits. It's an, it's something that's having an impact on uh, people throughout uh, rural Newfoundland and Labrador. The federal labor minister uh, says, uh, Seamus O'Regan says, uh, teams are working to find a solution, but he acknowledges that people are rightly anxious about the changes. They they changed um, the qualifying criteria, and it's a bit of a mathematical process, if you know what I'm saying, because unemployment went down in the St. John's region. Um, this has uh, prompted the Labour Minister here in Newfoundland and Labrador to contact his federal counterpart to say, hey, this is having an extreme impact. He also wants to see uh, Region 2 for employment purposes, and I don't know, I looked it up, I was trying to find the exact map for what Region 2 might be. And uh, it, uh, it's not clear to me they, because a lot of different things are showing up. Uh, but what I assume is that they want St. John's or the metro region or the Avalon Peninsula, whatever you want, however you want to describe it, cleaved off from the remainder of the, of the province, if that is in fact how it is currently configured. So we want to get some answers on that. But uh, so what's happening is that this uh, past year has been an extremely challenging one in the fishery in particular uh, when it comes to harvesters and plant workers, uh, people who would normally uh, require so many hours or so much uh, in the way of earnings to qualify for the EI to get them through the down season, now finding out that that whole formula has changed and that they may in fact no longer qualify or that the benefits that they do receive will be significantly reduced, not in terms of um, the the actual checks, but the number of checks, if you know what I'm saying. So um, that has, as that reality starts to set in, people are asking big questions. And of course, Clifford Small, the conservative MP says, you know, uh, this is going to have 
long-ranging impacts if nothing is done right now. It's one thing for people to suffer uh, through a season, a down season, with little to no earnings. It's a whole other thing when people have the mobility to go elsewhere and get work elsewhere. And then um, we already know, because we've been told this numerous times, is that a lot of uh, processors in Newfoundland and Labrador are having a real difficulty um, getting a labor force. So they have to bring in uh, foreign workers, temporary foreign workers. That's not always easy because that's there's a whole you know jurisdictional rigmarole that you got to go through there uh, with the federal government, and rightly so. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know, are there going to be plants able to process the fish and crab and other species that we land? Um, anyway, it's it, it's leading to some pretty big questions. I understand that the um, provincial labor minister is going to be calling us a little later on the show. Uh, so uh, anything, anybody with thoughts on that is certainly welcome to give us a call. Watching Hurricane Lee, but this is a different animal from Hurricane Fiona, thank goodness. It's going to hit uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, that Bay of Fundy area, Maine, you know what I'm saying? Uh, that's going to hit that area starting tomorrow, and then it's going to move up up through the Gulf of St. Lawrence and sort of pass almost exactly through the Strait of Belle Isle. So uh, it's going to have an impact here in Newfoundland and Labrador with uh, uh, some gusty type winds, nothing extraordinary from what I understand, and some uh, additional rain in Labrador. And it's been a kind of a rainy year in Labrador, hasn't it, for parts of Labrador? Anyway, so we may see some impacts of that, but uh, the kind of impacts that we saw, let's say, for instance, from Fiona last year, uh, hopefully we'll be able to avoid all of that. Um, and uh, in fact, Bob Robichaud of the uh, Canadian Hurricane Centre says this, this storm very different from what we saw with Fiona. It's much it's much more spread out, it's bigger, uh, so that means it's less powerful. And when it uh, makes landfall in Nova Scotia tomorrow, it's going to be less powerful. But it is going to impact uh, Marine Atlantic crossings, so they've got some advisories out now to keep an eye on things. So if you have any travel planned uh, going across uh, the Gulf, um, check with Marine Atlantic first. They're keeping a close eye on that, their captains are, and they'll be making uh, more definitive decisions in the coming hours. So be aware of that. We did get confirmation, by the way. This is something that was you know, going around social media um, quite extensively over the last little while. And uh, a lot of people asking questions about this. We have confirmation now from Newfoundland Power that the account numbers of customers have been changed, but it should not affect people's ability to pay as of yet. In a statement uh, sent to VOCM News yesterday, the company says account numbers were charged as of August 14th due to the implementation of a new customer service system. They say the new account numbers have been included on all electricity bills issued after that date. So for now, customers can either use their new account number or their old one to make their payments. However, they're going to have to switch to the new account number by New Year's Eve. So if you have that, uh, if you pay that automatically through, you know, your phone app with your bank or whatever the case may be, just be aware of that. Um, and if you have any questions, Newfoundland Power has a has a phone number, and I can give that out a little later on um, that you can call to make sure. And it should be up on uh, vocm.com as well.
Um, we already have quite a few uh, calls coming into the uh, VOCM uh, open line right now. We're going to start the show uh, this morning with Ruby. Hello, Ruby. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Good. How are you? I am good. Thank you. Uh, Linda, I just want to give a little update of what has been happening with me and my involvement since the rally on addiction and mental health issues. Right. So you were part of that uh, rally with uh, Tina Olivero and uh, other families in at Confederation Building. Yes, I was. And uh, I have met. Uh, I did briefly give this to Patty a week ago, but apparently people have been calling asking what the results of the meeting uh, meetings that I've had. So I thought this would be the best way to uh, let everybody know. Certainly. So who, first met, of all, who did you meet with? Yeah. Okay. We have met uh, the first meeting Linda and myself attended, or Tina, I'm sorry, and myself attended. We met with the Minister of Health, the Minister of Justice, an ADM from uh, CSSD, and uh, a representative. No, that was the second meeting. Uh, we met with three ministers. And uh, we had, a, a, I thought, a fruitful meeting. Uh, we then, I met with them again to two weeks later. Uh, one week later, I met with the three, two ministers, uh, ADMs, and two other representatives from the other two departments, which is CSSD and a representative from the RC, RNC. And I explained to them what we felt sh some action should be taken right away. Like, for example, the urgency of Provincial Recovery Center. And I stressed the importance of that, that we need that ra now rather than later, even if they started with a 10-bed center. And we went from there. At least that would be a start. And expand the arm reduction strategies throughout the province. You know, we, we know we have lots in St. John's, but how much do we have around the province? And a current recovery centers to have shorter time frame between the detox and recovery with required treatment provided. That has to go end in end suitable housing available upon departure of the recovery center. I, I read yesterday of a young girl ready to come out and has nowhere to live. The only place for her to go is in the street where she went before she went in recovery. So there's no help there. So we're looking for that to happen quickly. And the availability of mental health diagnosis and the availability of mental health medical professionals because there's wait lists up to two years. And also ensuring that the HMP professionals have necessary training for inmates with mental health issues and inmates displaying mental health episodes doing up on undergoing the assessments and diagnosis. You know, if those uh, guards are not trained to deal with mental health issues and those young people are older, it doesn't matter, they're not getting their appropriate medication or probably not 
diagnosed properly, they're going to act out. And then they're going to get what they call the hole for 21 days. This is unfair. This is not human in my books. And I guess uh, it contributes to that spiral. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, early assessment in the education system, like as early as grade one, because education, health, justice, all of this works together with mental health and addictions. So if a child is going in kindergarten and you see them with some misbehaving, or I think the assessment should be done then rather than grade four or five or later. The earlier you can get help, the, I think the better it is. Right, because it's uh, usually teachers and sometimes uh, daycare providers who, who start to notice uh, certain things. They start to notice, uh, you know, whether or not the child is uh, processing information uh, the way that other kids are processing the information. They know how uh, the child might get uh, agitated in certain circumstances. They know how the child might be struggling to understand certain concepts or whatever the case may be. Those are all little signs. Uh, doesn't mean that the child is condemned in any kind of a way, but those are signs to address so that these things don't manifest themselves themselves, you know, in a in much bigger problems as they get older. Well, look, exactly. And and those kids are spending what, six, seven hours of their day in that school, uh, certainly from grade one. And uh, they're going to pick it up if if there's a behavior problem with that child, probably quicker than somebody else would. So I think if the assessment is done starting at that age and not only me, I'm saying I'm thinking, but our old group is thinking that assessment should start at a very early age. So, Ruby, um, you met with these. Um, uh, sorry, we, we have quite a few people uh, waiting on the line, so I'll, I'll just move the conversation along a little bit if you don't mind. But you met with these ministers. Are you satisfied with uh, the kind of responses you were getting from them? Well, I, the, both times that I met with them, uh, I got commitments from them that they were moving along, that there's movements on the go in every department, and that they are going to put an all-committee uh, together. Uh, I'm not sure. I was told probably within the next couple of weeks uh, I've not heard. I've heard of some people that is appointed to that committee. Whether the committee is fully staffed and they're ready to go, I don't know. But I did tell them I would be a thorn in their side and I would be wanting an update at least every 10 days or so. And so maybe- I was assured they're working on it. I wanted to ask you this question because I know it's part of the conversation. It's part of the uh, the narrative that we've heard over the last little while. And I just want you to clarify this because there are those in the community who are saying, you know, you need to have people with lived experience part of this whole process. And some are um, also balking at the whole concept of forcing someone to seek um, uh, treatment, for instance. Is that what your group is advocating? Address that if you could. Uh, for me, I, I have not forced the fact that uh, I should take my son, for example. I'll use just 
myself and force him into a treatment center if he doesn't want to take it because I'm not sure that we will solve anything. Now, if they're beyond any control of their life, that might be a different story. But today, because my son is doing drugs and he's spaced out of his mind, but tomorrow he's okay, forcing him in that center is not going to help the problem. Having having a mental health so he can get seen to instead of getting pushed away or made feel less than what you really are when you see them is where I think a better start would be. And making sure that we have a recovery center in this province like every other province has so our children don't have or our sons or daughters, brothers or fathers don't have to go to B.C. somewhere if they can afford to go. At least they're around where there's family support. And this province has lots of condemned buildings that could be re done and put into a recovery center. I'm not saying it has to be in the area of St. John's, but I'm sure there are plenty of places in this province that we could have a recovery center. Do you want one recovery center or do you want maybe a a number of uh, smaller recovery centers, you know, spread out over over the province? Right now, one would be better than none. We have two we have Homerwood and we have the one in Arbor Grace, which is a 28-day stay. That's just long enough to get in and introduce to probably some of the ones that's just waiting to get back out on the street again. It has to be a minimum of three months. I don't think anyone can recover in 28 days. And then they need a safe place to come. I think they have to look at housing for our people that are on the streets. Like I'm right now getting together, gathering old phones. I will send this out there too. I'm gathering old phones that people has condemned so I can bring to some of those people and say, if you're ever in an emergency, at least you can call 911. You now, those people, winter is coming. They're getting ready to live in the streets. They have nowhere else to live. And this is probably through no fault of their own in most cases because of their behavior and because of things that have gone wrong through the system. They're out there through no fault of their own. And I think us as citizens of this province, we need to come together and make sure that we help them in any way that we can. And by putting them in shelters where there's nine cots to a room, that's not helping our situation. No, and from what I understand, that is happening. I've talked to and I've met a lot of families and a lot of friends in the last three weeks. I've cried tears with them because this is not human what's happening in our city, Justice City, and I'm sure it's happening in Corner Brook and Grand Falls and everywhere else. But it's just because it's brought to our attention right now that I'm saying the city. But I'm sure they're all around this province, and my heart bleeds for them because I lost a son from another mother through drugs and through mental health and through not being able to access the system. And I know their pain. I know what they're feeling. And I know when they put their head on the pillow at night, they're wondering, 
where is my son or where is my daughter? And it has to be the hardest thing that a mother can ever go through. And as long as I have breath in my body, I will support them and fight for them in every way I can. So with that, I'm just going to go and thank you for listening. Ruby, I really appreciate your call this morning. I know it's tough uh, and that you're uh, doing everything in your power to to address this uh, growing problem we have here in Newfoundland and Labrador and all the people who are, are who are hurting. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to uh, Tony. You're on the air. Hi, Tony. Oh, good morning, Linda. First time caller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I've had many urges to call, but didn't uh, have the nerve to call, I guess, is the point this morning. Uh, I'm calling with concerns this morning on the Trans-Canada Highway from, from Whitburn to St. John's, where where they're rip, stripping the highway and replacing the, the pavement, the asphalt. Uh, I've been doing that for the last 10 or 12 days quite frequently, and, I, and I'm really seeing some concerns, girl. They've, they've stripped a lot of places and left no signing. Uh, people are coming up on these uh, stripped edges of pavement and pulling out in front of people in their blind spot. And I, I've seen some, I haven't seen the accidents, but I've seen some close calls. So I don't know how many accidents it has caused. But I'm just wondering why they can't strip an area and fill the area and carry on down the road, which would be uh, work a lot more, I think, uh, better for the traveling public. Uh, so that's my concern this morning, girls. Just uh, I don't know if the government, the government, the Department of Highways can actually change the way they're doing that because myself, I've seen some really flimsy things on the highway with cars just flying around, just one guy cutting another guy off. And they, you know, I haven't seen any action. I've seen some really concerning things with that highway this year. And I know they have to do that, of course, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's grave there now. And I know they pretty well, looks like this morning, I'll just travel over. They've got most of it filled in. But for future, I think they should strip the area and fill the area. You're raising an excellent point. I've often questioned the same thing myself driving around town when they do the old uh, grind and patch, you know. Um, why is it sometimes uh, you'll have long stretches of roadway with these, you know, substantive uh, cuts in them, uh, slowing traffic and, um, you know, especially if people are not used to it being there, they might be traveling along at a certain pace, you know, and then all of a sudden hit these things. Um, and why they're not filled in a little bit quicker, like, you know, as part of that process, cut it, cut it uh, scrape it down, and fill it in right away. I, I often wonder that myself. So if there's anybody out there who happens to know why that process sometimes takes a little bit of time, I'd love to hear it. Uh, yeah, Linda, you said it right. Uh, there, there's guys traveling, like, new on the highway. There's not you not aware. Like me, I, I travel, I seem to be traveling every couple of days. But a guy coming up on a, behind a a huge truck or whatever and they hit that and not realizing that it's there or just before they hit it they realize they're going on it and they make a wave i mean the guy that's on their left hand side is in trouble so it's it's really really dangerous tony i'm so glad you uh, screwed up the nerve to call us this morning thank you very much we'll see what others have to say well, thank you for listening. I hope it gets to the right ears, and I hope they, they can do something for future uh, that will make that a little safer for traveling public. All right, safe travels. Thank you. Thank you for listening. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, thoughts on what Tony's had to say? I'm sure you've noticed the same thing. Give us a call. Now is your chance to do so. 
And we're off to a rip-roaring start here this morning. We're going to go now to the caller on the line now. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Good morning, Linda. Uh, I'm a first-time caller. I'm a little bit nervous. Okay. Well, that's okay. Um, I'm calling my daughter being bullied. All right. In school, I assume? Yes. Okay. It's been going on now since grade six. And how old is she and now? I'm, she's four, oh, sorry. She's 14. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, yesterday, she went to lunch with a couple of friends. And she got jumped by these three girls from in high school. They're like 16, 17 years old. She went to the mall. They actually came from the other school and jumped my daughter. And God, uh, she, it was an angel there, God. Sorry. She actually, this lady actually tried to get this young girl off of my daughter. I'm very emotional. Of course you are. And uh, so before I got to call the RNC, she actually called the RNC and reported this incident. So I am pressing charges against these girls because the bullying has been going on since she's been in grade six. It's been different people. We had one incident uh, before, but I didn't pursue no charges. It stopped from these other kids. They told her to cut her wrists, hope she got pregnant, hope she got raped. This is the things that my daughter's oh my been going through. God. Yes, yes, and she's got really bad anxiety now from it. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, yesterday she and her friends went for lunch, and these three girls from the other school came and basically jumped her. And this lady, I don't know who she is, but I did go, got her name afterwards because I met her at the mall. And she explained to me what happened. And she told me, she said, like, this girl, she was out for blood. If she wouldn't have got her off of her, she might have had a head injury. And unfortunately, we had to go to the Janeway because she got a concussion. And she's she's really, like, my daughter's not very big. And this other young girl, she's a little bit bigger than my daughter. She sat at her. And my daughter, like, she has asthma and stuff like that. She couldn't get her up and stuff like that. So, like, I don't know. Like, uh, I've been back and forth to the schools since grade six about all this bullying. Nothing's been done. I mean, called the school board. Nothing's been done. She stood up there last year for herself. She got in trouble because she stood up to this bully that was actually bullying her. My daughter got suspended from school because she stood up. This other girl didn't get nothing. So, to me, if, she, if you're standing up for yourself, you're still going to get in trouble. So, I, like, I don't know where to turn anymore. So, I draw the line yesterday when these three girls jumped her and her friends. I said, I'm done. I'm pressing charges. I know they're teenagers. I know maybe it's going to give them a criminal record or whatever is going to happen, but it's their choice. They've done the consequences. So they got to, uh, I don't know. I'm just so nervous here, but I was like, no, they I understand. Deal with it. Uh, well, I mean, a concussion, that's a serious injury. So, um, uh, I, I don't even know what to say. Any idea why your daughter's been targeted like this in no, this way for the last know. number of years? I don't know. Um, like she, apparently, like she was asking some questions about her friend and whatever. It just blew out of proportion. I don't know. Like my daughter, it seems like it's. I don't know. Is it something on her? Like my. I'm not saying because she's my daughter. She is a beautiful young girl. She do speak her mind. She do tell you what she thinks. Uh, we have freedom of freedom of speech. We're, we're we were taught to speak your mind. Tell people like what you think. And she does that. Like she comes. 
she doesn't like she doesn't like bullies. And like something goes wrong, she's like she's up to say like like this is not right. But unfortunately, I guess it gets her in trouble. So I don't know. Have like, you I'm considered just, uh, you know m- moving her from one school to another just to see if it? Um, unfortunately, yes, I am thinking about that for high school. So when she starts high school, I am not. I don't think I'm going to send her to this school that these because these girls are in the high school that she's got to go to next year. So that's the plan. Uh, we're thinking about moving her to another school. And unfortunately, I don't drive. We had to get uh, a bus or something. I had to find some other means of way of getting her to school. So unfortunately, I got to. This is the things I got to sit down and think about now. Like, I got to get you to school. And I got to get you home without being like, I, when she go to school, I get a knot in my stomach every day. I got a knot in my stomach. Like, do you get any, I satis- should- sorry, I didn't mean to cut okay. you off, but do you get any satisfaction with, uh, with the school when you raise these concerns? No, no, honestly, like, like last year, like I said, she stuck to this bully. She ended up getting suspended. This other girl didn't get nothing. Even though I went to the school and give them it's up, like this is going on, it's constantly, and and I said, she's going to lose it. I said, like, this child can't take much more of it, right? So she lost it, and she just nailed her. And she ended up getting suspended, but this other girl just got tripped under the rug. So, like I said, I don't know. Like, if she's standing up for herself, she's getting in trouble. She don't stand up for herself. She's getting beat up. So what am I supposed to do? Like, I, I'm to a loss. I Like I said, I draw the line yesterday. I feel bad. Like, I got to press charges. But I shouldn't feel bad. This is my child that I'm trying to protect. Her. She goes to school. I shouldn't be worried about I'm going to get a phone call. I got to go to the Janeway or go somewhere. Or I end up going to a morgue or whatever because my daughter is dead or badly beaten in and stuff like that. I shouldn't have to worry about that. No, you shouldn't. Caller, I'm glad you raised it. Uh, so you're uh, pursuing this now with police? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow, what a what an, uh, an ordeal. Um, I'd like to hear from others who may be encountering similar things uh, out there. I, I thank you for your call this morning. But I'm sorry, I guess I'm very glad that this lady and her daughter was there and actually try to get this young girl off of my daughter. Like she said, if she wouldn't have got her off, she might have smashed her head into the concrete at the mall because they were outside and there's a big concrete padding out there. And this is where she was sat on her and she was trying to put her head onto the concrete. But like I said, I'm, I'm so thankful to this lady. I said, when I met her, I said, you're an angel. I said, I am so thankful that you actually got her off. And like her other friend was trying to help her. And then this other young girl nailed it into her friend. So like, I don't know, like what is wrong with teenagers today? I don't know. Is it trouble at home or his parents don't know what their kids are doing? Like, I don't know. Caller, I appreciate uh, you raising this this morning, and uh, all the best to you and your daughter. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a great day, Linda. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to speak with uh, a uh, Spaniards Bay-based author and a Chess Crosby with an update on uh, something he's been working towards uh, when we come back right after this. 
your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. And I have in my hand uh, a lovely, shiny book. And uh, on the cover are two very smart-looking, handsome young couple. And they, I assume, are the parents of Robert Lundrigan. Is that right? Yes, that's right, Linda. Uh, so you've penned this new book, Love and War, the true story of William and Edith Lundrigan. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so um, so William, or Willie, as he has always been known locally, was 18 years old uh, when he decided he was going to join the Second World War and did so in January 1940 and uh, went overseas and joined the British Navy in the Newfoundland 3rd Contingent. And um, he, he had over 2,100 days in active service in various theaters of war throughout um, Europe, the Arctic, North Africa, and so on. Now, Edith, or Edie, my mother, uh, was was born in England from Essex, England, and grew up in a sort of a working class family where she enjoyed a good life. And uh, she began working uh, at age sixteen, just after secondary school there. And she worked in a in an essential food factory. And, and of course, when the war broke out in nineteen thirty nine, she was required to stay there for the next six years. And you know, while uh, while anxiously awaiting news from her brother, who had become a prisoner of war uh, of the Japanese uh, uh, while working on the Death Railway in in Myanmar or Burma, as it was known then, she spent much of her time with her co-workers and sometimes with her parents in in air raid shelters because of the the blitz carried out by uh, by the Nazis, of course. So Edith and William met in October 1944, and by all accounts, it was a whirlwind romance, and they they married in England by a a special dispensation of the church at that time in, in June of 1945. They lived in England until 1949, and then they sailed... On the uh, on the RMS Newfoundland to start a new life in in Newfoundland at that time, of course, and still Canada's newest province. So the the book explores, I guess, the the impact of war on the lives uh, and the mutual love. Uh, for the next sixty one years, they raised a family, and and sort of navigated, I guess, in the backdrop of financial hardship as well as the um, as the haunting tentacles of a long ago and far away war and if you if you look at the book uh, not even too closely but if you look at the book you'll see that um the planes the airplanes uh still sort of uh follow them in the background in the dark clouds sort of symbolically representing that though someone said the war is over for many war veterans and war brides the war didn't end at that time, and for many of them, it didn't end until they they died. 
So uh, I, if I could just go on, Linda, unless you want to ask me a well, question. Well, yeah, because I was thinking, you know, um, when you think about the resilience of that particular generation of, of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and, and people all over the world, the resilience that had to be shown uh, by people, first of all, who were directly impacted by the war, and then, um, you know, the war brides whose uh, hearts were stolen by these uh, handsome young fellas, <laughs> And um, and coming over here and the cultural shock that they would have had to uh, experience and and being away from their own families and everything they knew and everything they were familiar with, uh, because we we seldom think about it today. But then, you know, when you traveled across the ocean, your connections were very, very, uh, I guess, um, Tentative, if you will. Uh, you know, it wasn't the same today as if you just pick up the phone, call someone, or you send them a, a text or whatever the case may be and keep those uh, connections strong. Once you, you know, moved and, and moved across the ocean, you know, it's, you might never see your family again. Well, well, precisely. And you sort of echoed much that my mother said, uh, you know, over the years. Now, I, our family uh, has been we we've been fortunate my my well first of all my father was practically functionally illiterate when he left here after he met uh, my mother was you know for that day reasonably well educated um she helped him read and write and he became an active reader and and a writer and both my parents wrote a lot so I have a lot of their writings a lot of their journals and that sort of thing so I've been very fortunate to have a lot of material to help me get started on this and they were avid storytellers as well uh, in fact two of them went on to to become active members of the um, the Dan Opera Public Library. So, so I had lots of material, but but Linda, let me just tell you the other part of this story. So, so uh, I'm 69. Time flies when you're having fun, I suppose. Anyway, um, I'm I'm 69, and and from the time I was about nine years old, um, my father stopped working at age 42. My father stopped working, and. Um, you know, I I had I had three questions, and I've had them a lifetime, really. Um, and the questions are are basically, why did my father stop working at that time? Um, also, what what reason did my parents really have for leaving England and moving to Newfoundland? And of course, we we know that Newfoundland. From a from an economic point of view, was not nearly as advanced as let's say the rest of Canada or the United States or England and so on. And also a third question, which is which is explored and answered, I think, in the in the book, is my mother felt a great deal of anger towards uh, you know a race of people who had you know uh, you know whose leaders had uh, ensured that her brother uh, was captured. And and was subsequently tortured and died on this death railway. She had a lifetime trying to come to terms with that. But in addition to the separation, so I I I guess I wrote this as a way to try to try to figure out um, the answers to some of these questions. And <laughs> Linda, as you can appreciate, the, I already had the answers to the questions. 
they were in my head. I just had to, I just had to put this all together in this form. So, you know, I, I think this, I think this has a lot of implications for, you know, the way maybe a lot of families, whether their moms are war bride or not, and you know, those whose fathers were overseas, people came back with, uh, to some extent, um, some more than others, with a sort of a changed demeanor. And that, and that might go for many conflicts, not just either of the world wars, of course. Uh, but this book sort of talks about that in a way that I think many people can understand that the people who left here, though they returned and they were sometimes happy-go-lucky and they were functioning and so on, there were there was something about it that caused them to have changed significantly. So I'm, I'm hoping that it's not just a story for people, that, that there's something in it that people can grasp and say, you know, that sounds very familiar, and I, it, it helps me maybe understand what happened in, in my family, my, my dad or my mom or my grandparents or what have you. And how it changes the dynamics, I suppose. Uh, I mean, we have a term for it now, but do you think it was understood at the time when, um, you know, the phenomenon of uh, generational trauma, that, you know, the trauma that one generation uh, experiences um, somehow uh, gets passed down to, you know, the second, third, fourth generations? Well, well, no, that's, and that's really interesting because when I started this, I, I started to read all kinds of uh, material. And one of the one of the books that a friend of mine uh, loaned me was a, a book I, I can't tell you the author's name at the moment, but it was called The Invisible Injury, and um, and it was made pretty clear in in that writing that uh, during the war, you know, people such as Churchill and others saw anyone who was quote-unquote shell-shocked, the way they, they would refer to it at the time, um, uh, would be sort of malingerers or people who, who didn't who didn't, just didn't want to or were scared, didn't want to be in war. And, and, and the way they treated it was basically give them some time off, you know, give them some leave or what have you. And then the philosophy being that, well, after a month or so when they return, they should be able to sort of set the reset button and, and start all over again. That's sort of the way it was perceived. And it wasn't really until 1981 that the term uh, post-traumatic stress disorder was, was actually coined and used by the uh, American um, Psychological Association, which is, which is something that we all follow in Canada, you know. Well, it seems so, uh, it's a fascinating know. book, and it's uh, uh, no doubt a, a story that will uh, resonate with a lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians uh, because we had a lot of, uh, um, you know, uh, residents who um, made that effort during the Second World War and a lot who came back uh, with new loves, if you will, um, the war brides. Uh, so a lot of families affected in these ways. I'm sure a lot of people will want to pick this one up. Love and War, the true story of William and Edith Lundergan. Where can they find it? Well, I can find it. Um, it might be slightly premature, but I just sort of received um, unofficial word that it uh, it will it likely will be at Costco next week. But it's certainly at Coles, Chapters, and all fine bookstores right across the island. I know I've seen it on uh, pictures of it on on uh, uh, book uh, racks and shelves in Deer Lake, Gander, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And by the way, uh, Linda, tomorrow. 
at 2 o'clock um, at the um, Royal Canadian Legion branch in Upper Island Cove, branch number 22. I'll be having the official launch. We're expecting a big crowd. Uh, good friends, uh, uh, Pat uh, uh, Collins, uh, author Pat Collins, and Ida Linehan Young will be there. Flanker Press will be there. Uh, there will be a whole host of people there, representatives from at least uh, three Legion branches and the district commander. And, and so a whole bunch of people will show up tomorrow and uh, love to have anyone who, who has any kind of an interest in this book to uh, to come along and join us. The reviews so far have been great, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, getting the story out there. All right, Robert, I really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Royal Canadian Legion branch number 22, Upper Island Cove, 2 p.m. tomorrow, the official launch of Love and War, the true story of Lin- William and Edith Lundergan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. When we come back after the break, uh, Chess Crosby's in the lineup. Uh, we'll be back right after this. And we're back. Uh, Provincial Finance Minister Siobhan Coding calling a news conference at 11 o'clock this morning. VOCM News will be there. Uh, the province uh, says it supports the federal government's decision to remove the GST on new rental housing builds uh, as part of an effort to, I suppose, stimulate greater um, um, you know, construction to uh, meet the very serious housing needs uh, right across this uh, country. We're going to go now to Chess Crosby, who has been patiently waiting in the line. Hello, Chess. Yes, Linda. Thank you very much uh, for having me on the show. And I was delighted to listen to my old friend Robert Lundergan talking about um, the uh, background to his book, Love and War, the true story of William and Edith Lundergan, his parents. I guess you call it a wartime romance and marriage. And I look forward to getting a copy of that uh, from Flanker Press myself. Wonderful. But that's not the reason why you called. What's up? No, it was just a stroke of good luck that I listened to Robert uh, just before now. So uh, what I'm calling about is uh, yesterday, and uh, as many of your listeners might be aware, I've sort of disappeared from the public scene for two years or so. Used to be leader of the opposition, but I've taken a decent pause from calling your show ever since. Uh, But I've been involved this uh, year with a group called the National Citizens Inquiry, which uh, is an inquiry led by citizens and funded by citizens into government's responses in Canada to the, you know, the COVID pandemic. And uh, yesterday, the commissioners uh, released an interim report, and it deals with really just one issue, but it was so important they thought they needed to do it on an interim basis. And the issue is that contrary to what most people believe and have been encouraged to think by the government, Health Canada, which is the drug regulator, has never approved the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines. How so? Because, I mean, we, we get these notifications through uh, uh, the various news wires all the time uh, saying, you know, that uh, Health Canada has approved uh, the, the Moderna vaccine or whatever the case may be, whichever vaccine is, uh, is on the go at this particular time. Um, so we get those kinds of notifications all the time. What do you mean exactly? Well, now you're making a very good point. They have approved them, but they have not applied the traditional test for safety and effectiveness 
that was applied to all drugs and all injections prior to the last couple of years and prior to the advent of the COVID-19 vaccines. What that means is there has been no contrary to what Health Canada says on their website. And this is not my opinion now. It's not anybody's opinion. It is a proven fact. It's a you know, fact on the record, if you look it up yourself, the uh, regulations and interim order that approved these vaccines never determined the safety of them or, for that matter, the effectiveness. So every time you hear a politician or a health official repeat over and over and over again, as we've been exposed to safe and effective, safe and effective, this has not been established by the regulator. They're making that up. That's a marketing slogan. And Health Canada on the website says proven safe and effective. That is not true. That test of safety and effectiveness that was developed over you know many years by the regulator has never been applied to the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, what you do with that information is up to yourself. But it's an essential matter of informed consent, I think, for the population to know that there has been no safety approval. And uh, this repetition of safe and effective, safe and effective is just a marketing slogan. There was no regulatory approval of it. Uh, so my question is, is that may have been true in the early days when, you know, uh, the the uh, virus was spreading. It was uh, much more, um, it had a gr- much greater impact, I suppose, on people's health than it does today. Uh, hospitalizations were starting to rise dramatically. Uh, the death toll was starting to rise in many uh, populations. Um, and we simply didn't know anything about this virus. It was brand new. Our bodies were not used to it, uh, so they wanted to roll out vaccines in the most um, efficient and and quickest way possible. Is it still true today, though? Have they not done that? Are, are they not going through those processes like they once did? Yeah. So, Linda, you're quite right. It was rolled out on an urgent basis, and there was an interim order from Health Canada, say, from the minister. Um, you know, reciting that it was urgent, and so they were approving it. But then within about seven months, that interim order was was replaced by a regulation, which is still in effect, and it dropped any reference to urgent. And, you know, as I guess we're all aware right now, uh, there's no more COVID emergency in place. But still now, three years later, roughly, there has been no actual application of an objective test of safety and effectiveness by the regulator such that uh, such as they would apply to any other drug or medical device that is being given to the Canadian public that determination of safety was not made and it still has not been made and the population of the country needs to know that most people are laboring under a misapprehension. In fact, even courts are mistaken about this. Yeah, because those kinds of processes would take, what, years? Normally they, they would, but uh, I'm not, we're not being, you know, we've had several years of experience with this now. It's not like on the market as of three months ago, it's three years ago. And, uh, I mean, my mother is in Kenny's Pond, 
uh, just by way of example. And at the beginning of the summer, they wanted to roll out boosters for the residents there. Um, and so I asked, look, can I see the informed consent uh, information sheet that should go with this? And after some you know, probing and asking, I was given something. But it was quite clear to me that it was two and a half to three years old. It hasn't been updated. This is from the local public health authorities and Dr. Fitzgerald. It has not been updated in two and a half to three years. I can tell that from looking at it. So what's going on? They've got three years of experience, and yet they're still not giving us an up-to-date profile of the risks and the benefits. That's elementary uh, legal right that anyone is entitled to, but it's not being it's not being respected. Well, you're raising some interesting points here. We'll uh, see if we can get some answers from uh, public health officials in this province or even uh, federally, for that matter. Um, Chess, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Well, I encourage you to get anyone on the phone that you can who could address that. The point I'm simply making is the nature of the approval. It's not based on determining safety. And locally in this province, they have not updated the risk-benefit profile on their consent forms. Interesting indeed. Chess, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, we're up to news time now with Brian Medor. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. Uh, really busy first hour. Uh, lines have loosened up a little bit. Now is your chance to give us a call. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Linda Swain in for uh, Patty Daly today. We are going now to Robin. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Am I on the air? You are on the air. Someone bleeped out my name, so I wasn't sure if you're talking to me or someone else. Oh, okay. There's nobody bleeped out your name. It was just me hitting the uh, button, and I guess in that uh, process, it you didn't hear it. So, hello. Yeah, we need more oil and gas, a lot of it. For what? Uh, what? For what? For everything. Almost everything uh, operates on oil and gas nowadays. Gasoline for your car? Do you use a car or do you walk everywhere? So, yeah. We, you've, we, you've... we need good-paying jobs. Trudeau is strangling our industries. We need oil and gas and a lot of it. Look at Saudi Arabia and, and Russia. They're raking in the money. Well, we stupidly... Uh, are strangling our own industries. We need more oil and gas. We need good-paying jobs. Your other callers called in wanting uh, better penitentiary, better roads, better counseling. Who's going to pay for this? The, the province is bankrupt. We need oil and gas and lots of it. And yet the dichotomy there is that uh, uh, carbon emissions are killing the planet. It, it, it's not true. It's just rubbish. And we should be promoting oil and gas, getting a lot of good jobs here in the province to pay for all these expenses, roads, penitentiaries, counseling, what have you. Trudeau is destroying Canada. He's destroying Newfoundland. We've got to get our oil and gas on the move. Look at Russia. Look at Saudi Arabia. They're raking in the money. And we're, we're losing out. 
More oil and gas, for God's sake. All right, Robin, I appreciate your call. Thank you. All right. Uh, we're going to go now to the caller on line two. Hello. Hello. How are you, Linda? Oh, good, Bernie. I didn't realize it was you. <laughs> how are you doing? Excellent. How's everything going with you? Good. This is Bernard Davis for our listeners, uh, the uh, Minister of Labor for Newfoundland and Labrador. And I see that you have uh, written a letter to your federal counterpart about these EI changes. My goodness, I don't know about your phones, but our phones are, are going off the hook uh, with people asking about how this is going to affect them. Yes, no, absolutely. It's uh, it's all about a timing issue with the uh, the government, uh, and that's our biggest concern with the federal government now making this change, uh, the timing. Uh, I was on the road uh, earlier this week uh, in uh, south coast of Labrador, and I know the Premier was uh, touring many rural communities and, and, and fish plants and fishing in, uh, communities uh, across our province, and we heard it very loud and clear um, that uh, the changes made to the EI program is very challenging for individuals, it's going to be far-reaching, and it's going to to affect uh, and have implications that are uh, quite uh, challenging for uh, many of the communities that we all represent uh, uh, across this province. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned was um, giving consideration to, I suppose, um, cutting up or, or dealing with this, is it Zone 2 or Region 2? What, what was that all about? Yeah, so EI Region 2, uh, what, what we're asking the federal government is to look at that and maybe making some sub-regions because, you know, as it, uh, you know, it's one thing to be in, in St. John's, where the district that I represent, but it's quite another thing to be on the south coast of Labrador and Cartwright or, or Lance Clare or in Forteau. It's quite different uh, from, uh, from the uh, ability for uh, uh, use of labor. Uh, yes, there is always a, a need for labor, but, you know, from a standpoint, if you're, if you're an individual that these changes were made on uh, last Sunday, um, if you were in certain communities in our province, and many of them, uh, the fish plants are closed. Um, how are you potentially going to get more hours when they change the hours from 420 to 455 to 490? Uh, that's a challenge for an individual. And it's not necessarily about the decision itself. It's about the timing of that decision. And I think we need to look at that, and I think we need to look at some uh, potentially developing some sub regions in the province. But that's what I've asked uh, that's what I've asked our federal uh, minister to, to look at, uh, Minister of Employment and Workforce Development, uh, to, to look at those options and, and hopefully uh, make the changes that are required to alleviate some of the pressure and, and, uh, and fear that some of the people uh, in this province are, are facing. So what is Region 2? It's the entire province, is that correct? Yeah, Region 2 is the entire province uh, outside St. John's, essentially. Um, so there is many, many differences uh, across our province uh, that, uh, that need to be looked at, uh, and each community is, is slightly different and have different opportunities for employment. Um, you know, and it's not just the, the fishing industry and the seasonal work that goes along with that. You know, it could be construction in certain areas. It could be tourism. Uh, I'm a former tourism minister, so I understand, you know, when the uh, tourism industry starts to shut down in some of the smaller communities, uh, there's very little employment uh, for individuals to be able to utilize. So that's that's essentially why uh, they would. This is a devastating change, and not that they and, and it's a change they really couldn't plan for. So whether that's the employment, uh, the the businesses that employ these individuals, they didn't un, they didn't know what was happening, and and the employees themselves didn't know it was coming in such a uh, at such a, a, a hard time. 
essentially uh, uh, at the in the year. If this was in the first part of August, it may be a little bit of a different story. There could have been some changes made to support those uh, individuals that would be affected. Could have been a few more hours there. They could have stayed open a little longer. But some of these areas are, are closed, uh, and that's uh, that's an important piece. And we're hoping the federal government will give urgent uh, this urgent matter some special consideration. Is uh, could this have a, an impact on on you know what in many areas is already be experiencing a labor crunch? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know the labor crunch is is a, a different issue, and that's part of the reason why uh, the change is occurring. I mean, you know, our unemployment is uh, around 12 percent in in the island, and less than that in St. John's in Zone One, you know, or Region One, um, you know, so. We, we need to be cognizant of the fact that there is an employment uh, challenge, but also in some of the other communities it's, it's different because if the main employer is the fish plant, as an example, uh, and that's closed, well, then it's very challenging for you to get uh, hours if you're 40 employees that are, you know, 20 or 40 hours short. And I think that's why I'm, I'm asking, and, and we have asked, uh, uh, the, our provincial government has asked the federal government to look into this and, uh, and give some, consider, uh, give some uh, this urgent matter some uh, consideration that's required for those individuals and hopefully find some positive solution that can, that can help these individuals get through this period. And when it comes to the fishery, this is, I don't need to tell you, it's been a pretty rough year. So uh, the, the review, I understand, is getting underway into the fish price setting process? Yes, so we've we've established a, a group, a working group that's looking into that now, and uh, I hopefully uh, they're they're well underway in their work. Um, they're going to be reaching out to uh, to industry, uh, both ASP and FFAW, uh, and work uh, closely with um, people on the panel that are currently on the panel and people that have been on the panel before, and look at ways to. Uh, get to a formula-based approach, which is what we, we think uh, fishermen have been asking for, as uh, fisher people have been asking for for a number of years. I know both the industry and uh, the association have been asking for that as well, which is something that uh, we're hopeful to get to. And we were very close last year um, uh, in getting to a, a formula-based uh, approach. We have that in, in some species now, uh, lobster being one as an example. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get to there in not only crab, all the species that we can, and, and this is what this group is going to be trying to look at, other jurisdictions, what they're doing, and, and giving that uh, su successful information when we get it uh, to, the in to uh, hopefully a, a place where we can get to those, um, you know, those formula-based uh, uh, species. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but, uh, of course, uh, last year's uh, uh, crab fishery was, was, you know, chaotic at best. Uh, I think everybody went into this year's fishery with, a, with a, you know, a renewed optimism, but that all fell apart very quickly. Are you hopeful that this can be resolved for next year? I'm very hopeful. I, I, you know, I think all parties are at the table uh, hopeful for that uh, resolution. I think last year was a very challenging season. Uh, this year was a very challenging year uh, for all parties. Um, you know, so from that standpoint, I think uh, it's driven a lot by the world market, and hopefully that's stabilized a little bit more now. And, and this review is going to be get to a, a formula-based system, we hope, that's going to better utilize um, both uh, uh, for the harvesters as well as the processors. And I think that's uh, the benefit that both can share in the successes when the industry goes up and, and hopefully uh, in a very small case uh, if it goes down. But we, we want to make sure those decisions are as strong as we can and best information provided. And hopefully that report will be out, uh, Linda, by uh, you know, mid-October. Mid 
And uh, circling back to the reason why you called your letter to the federal minister, any response uh, as of yet as to uh, the concerns that you've raised on behalf of the people of Newfoundland and Labrador? Uh, no response as of yet, but I have been talking to uh, Minister O'Regan, and uh, and uh, he's he's uh, he's working hard on this as well. So, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll find some they'll find some solution, and and we're willing to uh, push as hard as we can for the people we all represent. Labor Minister Bernard Davis, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. And uh, we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to, well, uh, a couple of people on the line with very interesting topics to raise. Uh, we'll be back right after this. And we're back. Uh, Linda Swain in for Patty Daly today. We are going to go now to Chris Palmer. Hello, Chris. Hello there. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm calling from the uh, town of Orleans. Yeah. Just wanted to let you and your listeners know that this Sunday, between 11 and 3, we are holding the third annual Bowling Climate Action Day. We'll have a broad range of exhibitors and vendors uh, dealing with uh, displaying materials relating to all sorts of aspects of climate change like energy production, conservation, recycling, composting, um, you know, and food security and so on. And uh, we just invite anybody who happens to uh, want to come along and have a family affair. Uh, we will have drive electric coming with several electric vehicles that people can take away on a test drive to see how the vehicles uh, perform. Just bring your driver's license. Uh, and we'll have all sorts of games for the kids. Take Charge will be there to talk about their upgrade and, re and uh, rebate programs for houses and other buildings. There'll be food and beverages available. Admission is free. Just ask people to bring a food item to donate to the food bank. So there's something for everybody and hope people can make it. I do know Balin is very tight-knit um, and has uh, this great community spirit, uh, always putting together activities uh, for the entire community. But how did this Climate Action Day uh, idea come together? Can we? This is the third year we're doing it, and we started it with our uh, energy consultant, Fundamental Inc. of Harbour, Maine, put together a day just to to look at the uh, you know the the impacts of climate change on municipalities. And in those days, three years ago, we had just written a, a local climate action plan that has green energy strategy where our goal is to put solar panels and, and uh, use a wind turbine to generate all of our own electricity uh, and any excess that we may produce send back to the grid. So we have quite an elaborate plan for a small town to become more energy sustainable and environmentally conscious on the Climate Action Day we thought came out to give our residents and surrounding communities uh, just a chance to look and see the kind of things that can be done. 
For sure, on a very um, you know personal kind of level. Sometimes when we think about climate change and that, uh, the the uh, issue seems so big that it, you almost feel paralyzed in in how to where to start, if you know what I mean. But there are uh, little things that we can do that will all make a difference. Well, there are. I mean, we have a a program called that we institute here called Second Harvest Food Rescue, where we get food donations from the big retailers, food that wouldn't normally sell. And roughly every week, you know, we've got a whole supply of food products from dairy to microgreens to whatever that people can come and help themselves. So, you know, in the days of uh, of food insecurity and rising costs, we hear back from our residents that it's a great boon to have that kind of service. And that's only a small thing. As you said, it's uh, it's a small thing we can do, and if we can help, we can help. Chris Palmer, really appreciate your time this morning. So the third annual Balleen Climate Action Day taking place this Sunday, 11 to 3. 11 to 3, everybody welcome. We just ask people to bring a, a food item, no admission, plenty of things to do. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to uh, Rowan Sherlock. Hello, Rowan. Hi. Um, So I see that the uh, George Street Association has uh, issued a release indicating that the Downtown Safety Coalition, um, the pilot is, uh, the phase one pilot is being termed a success. Now, I know you were one of the voices that uh, kind of led to the creation of this uh, group. Uh, how, How are you feeling about it? Pretty good, honestly. Um, I was actually I was just just downtown last night playing playing a show with my band, and we were all commenting and and speaking with the staff at the venue where we were. That one of the best things that's come out of this has been the there's a foot patrol security company that now works on George Street from afternoon until like it must be two or three in the morning every night, and that increased little presence of security down there really kind of making people feel a bit better about things. And I heard actually from a friend of mine who was in the RNC that during the George Street uh, Festival this year, the RNC didn't get called to a single event that took place on George Street during the entire festival. And we think that's probably due to the fact there was security working down there full time. So it seems to be working. Well, that's good to hear because you were yeah. one of the people who, who said, you know, I've been doing this for a while now. I'm noticing some changes. I'm not feeling that safe anymore. So how have things changed? Yeah, I, there was, there was, see, over the past couple of years, there seems to have been a huge influx in the rate of crime down on George Street and not just George Street, but the kind of surrounding areas downtown when it comes to crime and, you know, theft as well as assault and things. And it was just, it was getting to kind of a breaking point. Um, but since then, I really haven't heard very much about incidents from, from any of my musician friends or, or the bar workers downtown. Now, there is always going to be a scatter bad thing that happens. That's, that's pretty much unavoidable because, you know, bad people exist and they, they can't all be stopped all the time. But from what I'm hearing, it's, it's definitely working. Um, one of the other notable things that I've noticed is really working is that they've increased the lighting. That I know that when I was speaking to, um, to Paddy on Open Line last year, that was one of the comments that he made uh, quite a few times. With that it was so dark down on George Street, it kind of 
it can be a bit daunting when you're walking down some of those little alleyways, let's say down onto Williams Lane between George and, and Water Street. Um, but all of those have been lit up ever since. So you're never really walking in the dark at night down there, which has been pretty good. And just the presence of uh, people, security officers, just sort of uh, in the environs is, is helping as well? Yeah, it, it definitely is. I mean, I know from a personal standpoint, when I'm walking from, let's say, the City Hall parking lot down to George Street venues, and I'm carrying all these instruments, you know, which can be worth, you know, thousands of dollars, knowing that you're walking past some of these security staff that are patrolling pretty regularly up and down the street, it's a, it's a nice feeling and you, you don't feel like you're kind of looking over your shoulder all the time anymore. So what's the next phase then, I suppose? This is phase one. Uh, what happens next? Uh, I'm, I'm unsure. I, I actually just received that email myself from George Street Association this morning um, reading into it. So I know that the first phase was the increase of the security company, which is the, I think they're called ISS, um, who are the only security company who are kind of um, capable of being tied in with the RNC. Um, so that was one of the phases. And the second, the second part of phase one was the increased lighting, which they've done. And the third part was cleaning up, physically cleaning the street, which they have been doing as well, which I've seen. Um, so I'm not sure what the next phase is, to be honest with you. Um, I'm just, I was trying to make make sense of that email and, and see what that is. Um, but whatever it is, I mean, it can only be further improvements from here on in, whether it's increase of an improvement of the CCTV, um, uh, the cameras down there on George Street, maybe that's something they're going to look into, I'm unsure. But um, yeah, as I said, anything else is just going to be a plus. So uh, are you hopeful that this will continue, this, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, level of surveillance, if you will, for want of a better word, uh, you know, uh, you know, the security presence in that? Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty hopeful. I mean, it'll be silly of them to stop that any any time soon. I mean, if they start looking at facts and figures, I mean, if they do contact the RNC and look at facts and figures for crime around that area of downtown, they ha- they'll have to see that it's been significantly reduced ever since. And I mean, surely that's enough for them to kind of say, well, this is working. Let's let's keep this going. And as well as it keeping everybody safe downtown, the workers and the public, it's also providing employment to quite a large number of security officers down there. So it's just a win for everybody, I think. Rowan Sherlock, appreciate your input this morning. Thank you very much. No problem at all. Thanks, Linda. Alrighty. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, we're going to hear from the Deputy Mayor of St. John's and uh, uh, a few others about things on the go in the next little while. Right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we're back. Uh, busy show so far today. We're going to go now to the caller on line five. Hello. Are you talking to me? I'm talking to you. I don't have a name, so I had to just say caller on line five. Hello. Oh, morning. I'm sorry. <laughs> I heard a bing. I, I didn't know it was me. I got a little bit of a call, so I'm going to be trying to be as brief as I can. All right. Uh, talking about bullying, the lady that called at the beginning, I've experienced it. My wife experienced it. My daughter experienced it from grade six, I guess, to grade 12. And she didn't tell us. Oh, no. So, no, my advice to the lady that, that called first this morning, uh, pursue, pursue it in, in a way that you're going to go after the parents. 
never mind a child, get her a child, they tell the names of the people that's doing this, and then go after the parent or the guardian or whoever they are, because my daughter wouldn't tell us because my wife was sick, very sick, and my daughter was uh, diagnosed with severe scoliosis, so she had to wear a body brace, and that really put her back because from kindergarten to grade six, she was more or less a honor student, and after that, it just went all downhill. And it, it followed her right up, you know, until she got pregnant and then went away and came back. And from the stories from my wife, she was telling me this stuff because I picked her up one time. She used to, I'd have to take her to school instead of the bus and then go pick her up after after school. And there was three girls in the bus at the back. And I knew the faces. I said, at the time, if I had a camera, I would have got a picture of the faces. And the, the three of them had two fingers up, and one on each hand, if you know what I mean. Okay. Pointing at, and I, and I said to my daughter, I said, what are they doing? So she said, don't worry about it there. Now, I found out. So I went to the teacher or the principal in grade seven. And this is what this guy did. He made those three girls sit in the room, the three abusers with her, and made them shake hands, which made it worse. So I, I put all the onuses on the principal. The principal is like taking a, a wife beater in a courtroom, and the judge say, wife beater, go over and shake your wife's hand and make up. That do- oh, sorry, that, does, that doesn't work. It made her life worse. How so? Because they they were, you know, when you tell somebody off, they're going to come back louder and worse than they were before. You know, like, like road rage. It, it just doesn't work. So the parents need to be put in the room with the child and the child and the parents that's being abused, with the police, a judge, a teacher, and a principal. And, and I should out and ask these kids, why are they doing this to this one person? But if this one person, like the, the lady said, she fought back, she got in trouble. I said to my daughter, I said, listen, there's two places to hit a person, on the nose or in the throat. And she said, Dad, I can't do it because she's a big girl. She's, I don't mean fat. She's big. She's brownie. But she was as timid as she could be. She was passive like I am and my wife. But really... Somebody needs to take the bull by the horns and give these children cameras, some kind of camera somewhere on their body so they can videotape this stuff. Well, they all have cameras now, as you know. Um, no, but kids don't say. The kids, I'm talking about kids. If I had the money, I would make a program for that for all schools, like a big lottery, we'll say, right? So the kid that's being bullied would have a camera on his body somewhere or their body to record the stuff the conversation and what's going on. So you'd have a line. Um, I didn't know what to do because my wife was sick and I, I didn't I didn't take the time to listen because my wife was paralyzed and, and it was hard. You know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, they do have conflict resolution um, programs in schools and the like. Uh, nobody wants to advocate violence, if you know what I mean. But uh, sometimes it comes to that when a child is is feeling that frustrated and has had enough. Um, so, uh, but in your case, you didn't know about it. Um, if yeah, you did this, know about it, how do you think it should have been um, resolved? I, like, I, I don't have much education, right? So, I mean, I dropped out in grade nine. My wife dropped out of school in grade 10 because we were bullied. I mean, I was put through the ringer. I was afraid of the 
my teacher. I was afraid of my principal. I was afraid of the, the kids next door, the school next door to me. I was afraid of my neighbors. I was afraid of the police. I was more terrified of my parents than I was of anyone else because there was a backhand or a rope in the back of your mind that's going to be used on your body because that you got in trouble. I mean, I got in a fight once, and I came home with a black eye. My father beat me senseless. Don't ever fight again. I mean, so how do you pick up for yourself if you're not allowed to fight and your parents tell you? Because they chased me home and threw rocks, and I ran in the house, and I said, Mom, I said, they're throwing rocks at me again. She said, you stay here for five minutes, and they'll go away. So that was it. That was it. Five minutes is like an eternity to a 10 or 11 or 12-year-old. Yeah, for sure. And that, that doesn't work. But my parents were as afraid of the neighbors and everybody else as I was. But when, when my daughter, my wife got sick, my daughter lost her mother. She got MS, and uh, it was terrible, right? Yeah, so she was and dealing with a lot of stuff at that particular time. Sure, and she couldn't tell no one, plus wearing a body brace. Yeah. A young girl, and, and like she couldn't pretend, well, how come you're not running? Okay, well, she's wearing a body brace, by, but she wouldn't tell anyone. She, all of her clothes was big and... You know, she, she didn't want to show herself up. You know what? That girl turned out to be now. She's working administration in, in the Western Memorial Hospital. So she turned out pretty good because she went back to college. And she finished off where she left off. And she was top in the class. And I, I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, gloating or gloating, whatever you want to call it. But I'm proud of her, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh- and she got two beautiful boys. And, and, and the lady got to go after. You got to go more or less for the juggler, and that's the people who created these children. That's the only that's. And if she got to get a fundraiser, to get a lawyer, I'll give her a hundred dollars right now. All right, caller, we'll leave it there. But I, I really appreciate your your call this morning. Well, thank you very much for your time. You have a wonderful day. All right, you too. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye. We're going to go now to uh, Leon Mills. Hello, Leon. Hi, Linda. How you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, uh, you got something to celebrate. Yes, I uh, am. Well, in my day job, I'm the executive director for the Art Appearance Association, but uh, in one of my volunteer roles, I'm a treasurer with the Geraldine Rubia Center, which uh, some people may have heard about. It's not real well known, but uh, the reason I'm here this morning, I just wanted to get on just to promote uh, a special event week where this is our 40th anniversary. And so I just wanted to take a moment to tell uh, people a little bit about the center and this work and just so they understand what's going on. and and uh, with some of the things that we're doing. Yes, please do. So for anybody yeah, for who may not time. know, what is the Geraldine Rubia Center? Yeah, well, the Geraldine Rubia Center was founded by a lady called Geraldine Rubia. She was a Newfoundland poet and writer, and she had a, a son with special needs. And there wasn't much of a need being uh, much op- resources available uh, at that time, 40 years ago, for uh, people with special needs. And so she developed the Longside Club, which is a... Play on names, where she said, "Come sit alongside of me," and so that's what it was called off in the years. But in recent years, now the she passed away, so the the center's been renamed her her honor. It's on Shaw Street, uh, and we're in a building that belongs to Smith Stockley. They they provide us, you know, the building with in terms of modest fee, which we really appreciate. And it's totally un, uh, self-funded with donations and and sales of uh, you know food, lunches on Fridays, and things like that. And all the it's no there's no paid staff. Uh, there's just the full-time volunteers there that you know go there four and five days a week and uh, 
of their own free time and help provide a center for adults with special needs to drop in and you know they play games and and sing songs and and just uh, they're there with the workers and it's a place to like you know daycare Monday to Friday and they come and and uh, hang out together and, and play all kinds of you know different kinds of games and and uh, bingo and do karaoke and there's meals and things like that so it's a wonderful place and uh, we're having a 40th anniversary celebration that started yesterday with a uh, opening ceremonies and we launched a new website so at GeraldineRubiaCenter.ca if somebody people would like to go on it and uh, just sort of see what we're all about and uh, you know we're having different activities on like today is a carnival day and tomorrow night there's a dance for the workers and caregivers uh, uh, Saturday the, yeah uh, Sunday we got a car show and bingo weather permitting uh, the bingo will be inside and then there's other activities uh, over the next few days, and we're ending it all with a big celebration dinner on Thursday, September 21st. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, you know, who the Jolie Rubia Center is. And like I said, it's not well-known, but we just wanted to get get on here and uh, let people know who we are. And like I said, uh, look, we're self-funded and with donations and uh, earned income from selling the food meals on Fridays, things like that. So uh, we'll be posting that on our new website shortly, a calendar of uh, when people can order meals and things like that. If they want to uh, support the center at a very reasonable price. And this year, we're, uh, because it's the 40th anniversary, we uh, were asking people to consider making a $40 donation. And they can go on to our website and, and do that if they'd like. And there's a page, special page there uh, from uh, Canada Helps where uh, people can make a donation uh, to the charity. So so that's what it's all about. And I, I just want to, like I say, just get on there just to give a, a little bit of a promo about about the center and, uh, and its work and what we're doing. Sure. How many people avail uh, typically of uh, some of the events? Uh, they have about events. Uh, 80, 90 members. Uh, you know, a worker, uh, when, a, when, a, when a member comes there during the day, they have to have a work with them because, you know, they need help and support and that kind of stuff. We don't have staff to do that kind of thing. So there's usually a very good crowd there every day. You know, the buses drop people off and, in the morning and or they can come any time during the day. They can come all day. It's up to them. Uh, but our, our wonderful president, uh, Gary Furlong, he's the guy that... Uh, you know, it's been uh, the center closed for a few years. Actually, they ran with some troubles, and and uh, you know, need, um, got uh, back on its feet with the help of uh, Rotary Group and um, uh, the Naturals Group of Rotary and uh, Rotary Club of St. John's, and uh, that's how I got involved with them. And uh, so we helped them get back on their feet with the sisters' uh, presentations, sisters, sisters of mercy. And uh, so it's going very well now, and uh, it's been re- the center's been refurbished. And uh, so, uh, so we're very excited, looking to the future. But our pre- I want to give a big shout out to our president, Gary Furlong, who's a retired gentleman who just goes there Monday to Friday, nine to five, and just volunteers his time to keep the place going. He's our president, and uh, he's just uh, absolutely amazing. And a couple of other people there, uh, Walter and and uh, Steve, uh, also help out. They're there quite a bit, and so. So just some really, really wonderful people uh, helping the centre uh, thrive and survive, as it were. Well, Leon, I'm so glad you called. Uh, happy anniversary to the Longside Club, uh, now the Gerald Rubia Centre, uh, and all the wonderful work they do uh, with people in the community. Uh, really appreciate this, and anybody who wants to learn more can go on uh, GeraldRubiaCentre.ca. No, Geraldine Rubia Centre. Geraldine! <laughs> Sorry, did I say something different? I got it written down as Geraldine. Yeah, Geraldine Rubia Center with an R. Yeah. 
merchandise. Oh, very and, good. And uh, like I said, I remind people to, uh, to, or to consider making a $40 donation in, in light of the 40 years of, uh, you know, service to the community and anniversary celebrations to help us out with the costs. And uh, so we appreciate everybody's support and uh, encourage people to drop down on, on Sunday for the car show if they'd like. And, uh, you know, and there's going to be some hot dogs and things like that. And it'll be sort of like a little small bingo inside. So it should be a fun day if uh, hopefully the weather permits. <laughs> we'll have a lovely car show. So we'll see lots of people. For sure. Car shows are always fun. Uh, Leon, oh. we really appreciate this. Thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate you having on, Linda. And thank you very much. And happy Friday. Same to you. Okay, All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to hear what uh, Deputy Mayor Sheila O'Leary has to say coming up right after this. And if you're looking for something interesting to do in Corner Brook this weekend, the uh, CB Nuit Festival is taking place uh, throughout the evening uh, this uh, Saturday into the early morning hours um, uh, with live music, dance, um, all kinds of different activities. Uh, as a result, some uh, streets will be closed in Corner Brook uh, to take in this um, special performance festival. They include... Uh, West Street um, beginning at 4 p.m. on Saturday and lasting till about 1 a.m. the following morning. It will extend from Todd Street to Main Street. But uh, CB Nuit, uh, check them out on um, uh, online. You'll see all the activities they have planned there. And I know last year's event uh, had a lot of really uh, different varied activities. Uh, so uh, something to check out if you happen to be in Corner Brook or if you live in the city. We're going to go now to the Deputy Mayor of of St. John's, Sheila O'Leary. Hello. Well, good morning, Linda. My gosh, it's been a long time since I've spoken with you or your listeners. Hasn't it, though? Yeah, it has. And it's, anyway, a really interesting discussion happening on your show. Uh, uh, I just wanted to briefly just reference, my gosh, uh, congratulations to uh, Geraldine Rubia Center, 40th anniversary. That's fantastic. They've done such great work over the years in the community. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Leon and Gary Furlong and all of the team that keep that going. And congratulations. Um, and of course, the other thing I wanted to mention, because this is another thing that the city of St. John certainly has been involved with, is um, trying to improve the safety efforts of uh, in conjunction with the, the George Street Association. So uh, when Rowan Sherlock was on, really pleased to hear the comments from him that they're very encouraging about uh, the improvements that have been happening as a result of uh, street presence and improved lighting which is something we know certainly helps the safety you know in our downtown core right and sometimes uh, you know solutions to um, complex problems uh, can you know you know those the, the early solutions anyway, complex problems require a lot of uh, different uh, approaches, but sometimes those early yeah. steps uh, can be rather simple. Uh, sometimes, you know what, look, and it there is no magic pill, right? You know what, in terms of improving safety, we know that we've got a lot of challenges in our communities these days uh, with rising mental health issues, addictions, and, uh, and certainly uh, poverty. Can I say the word poverty? Uh, you know what, we're seeing a growing disparity, certainly in extreme wealth and extreme poverty. And that's something that we, you know, is a systemic issue we really got to tackle. But uh, anyway, there's a, it's a big issue. We're not going to solve today, but I'm very pleased to hear some of the positive news that's coming out of um, of uh, the comments that uh, Rowan and, um, you know, another community leader certainly have been bringing forward. So, 
But uh, Linda, I wanted to contact you today regarding FCM, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. So uh, if I can just speak with you and your listeners about this, because I don't think a lot of people hear the news about what this organization does, right? And um, so in May of uh, this year, I had the great honour of being elected to the board of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, uh, which is basically the federal organisation that lobbies and advocates for municipalities, just like our own municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, does it for us in our province. And, uh, of course, we all know that municipalities are the ones that really, it's where the boots, you know, hit the ground and, um, and where all the responsibility tends to fall in terms of issues of everything from infrastructure, to, you know, to um, how we function and, uh, and serve our residents. And um, so in May, the members of the organization passed a resolution that we need to have a new growth framework a new municipal growth framework. And what that means is we need to find a different way of adjusting a system so that we can get the money that we need in our communities to do things like, you know, infrastructure, um, you know, deal with housing and homelessness. Um, These are all really, really important issues. And with a growing population, I mean, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's an old system. It's not working anymore. The property tax issue is not enough to uh, to address the needs, certainly, of municipalities. So, you know, some of the things that, um, you know, they've been discussing, and of course, as a new board member, I'm getting up to speed here, but I'm really excited about the dialogue that's happening. Uh, municipalities are operating with a 19th century revenue system to 21st century responsibilities. And of course, a growing population, growing immigration, and, uh, of course, we're well behind the ball in, when it comes to uh, providing affordable safe housing for, for our residents. And that's right across the country. When you say a 19th and century revenue system, uh, what needs to change then? How does it work now? And what, do you, what, would, what would need to happen uh, to make it more responsive to uh, current needs? Well, this is what's happening now. And, and, you know, there's no prescription, absolute prescription. But we're talking about trying to find out better methods to deal with the the growing population and all of these different issues that's really downloading to municipalities. And so this basically is the conversation opening up certainly with our federal leaders um, about a kind of a different way of approaching it because property tax in itself is just not enough to suffice any longer. And this is a national discussion. This isn't just in the city of St. John's. This isn't just in and the province of Newfoundland Labrador. It's right across the country. So it's a national discussion about how federal and provincial governments can be leaders in changing that, the system so that we can, for example, you know, create better public infrastructure. So here, here's an example, Linda. Municipalities manage more than 60% of Canada's public infrastructure yet only receive eight and 10 cents for each dollar collected. So, you know, you know the, the, the needs are growing, but uh, we, we can't collect it at the municipal level. And emerging certainly from the pandemic, we've seen federal, provincial sales and income taxes increase rapidly, while overall municipal property taxes remained flat or even declined. And of course, that doesn't account for inflation and population growth. 
So it's a very, very challenging time for municipalities, and we're working with old systems, and we need to have that discussion with our federal leaders to find out how we can create a better growth framework for municip- municipalities and uh, that would benefit our residents. It's all about the people who are living in our, in our, in our cities and our towns. And uh, so I'm, I'm really excited. Um, this is going to be, uh, you know, for the next year, I'll be representing the city of St. John's at the federal level on this board. So I, I certainly will be checking in with you from time to time if, uh, if you're so interested in, in your callers, just to let them know what is happening with this organization, because the lobbying efforts of municipalities is really important. And, uh, and as I mentioned before, municipalities really, truly are where the rubber hits the road and, uh, and a lot of the responsibility falls in that framework. But we need to find a better system. We need to find a better framework. Well, Sheila, I'd love to have more conversations about this because it's such a big one and it's one that affects all of our lives in very fundamental ways. So I I really appreciate you touching base on some of these uh, very important issues and um, the discussions that are underway. And I'd like to explore it a little further in the near future. Thanks very much. Absolutely. I will be in touch. And thanks so much, Linda. It's a great show and lovely to talk to you again and and your listeners. Take care. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we're up to news time now with Brian Medore. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly into the last hour of the program. We're going to go now to Paul Toomey with the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Hello, Paul. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Oh, great. How are you? I'm not bad at all. Not bad at all. Thanks very much for taking my call this morning. Yes, no trouble. What's on your mind? Uh, the Concert of Hope is returning. It was one of our uh, great events we held for a good number of years, featuring the Masterless Men and uh, for a while uh, some other groups, Shanaganuck, Rum Ragged, etc. And uh, I guess just prior to COVID, uh, we had our last concert, but we're actually returning again this year on October 21st at the Arts and Culture Center. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about the lineup and that and what the proceeds of the concert go to and how people can get tickets because they are starting to move fairly quickly. For sure. So uh, who's who's on the lineup? Well, uh, I guess the leaders of the lineup are the masterless men. They've been faithful supporters of the foundation going back, uh, oh, my God, right to, right to the beginning. So they've certainly come back on board this morning, uh, John Kern, Wolf, and, and the rest of the group. And uh, this year, uh, I, we kind of left it to them to in, invite who they thought uh, might be good people to have. And uh, they started out with a group called the Dolly Kits, which consists of uh, Katie Barber, Kelsey Arsenal, and Jordan Young. So there's a true uh, Fairland Southern Shore connection there. And I guess uh, the guys heard them at the uh, Southern Shore Folk Festival and said, this is a sound that needs to be heard to a much broader audience. So uh, they've invited them to come come along and perform, and uh, we don't think people are going to be disappointed. Uh, they've also invited along Scott Graham, and I think most people remember Scott from his uh, Celtic Connection days, but Scott is a great performer on his own, and again, a great great friend of the guys of Masterless Men, so it's going to be a wonderful evening of entertainment at the Arts and Culture Center on Saturday, October 21st at 8 o'clock. And where can people get the tickets? 
Well, uh, in the Arts and Culture Centre, uh, I guess you can call their box office between 12 and 6, Monday to Friday, 709-729-3900, or go online, artsandculture.com, and you can order your tickets right there. I've actually got uh, my two tickets right right in front of me. Tickets are $38 each, and that's that's all service charges and everything in, so it's a, it's a great price for a, for a fabulous night of entertainment, and uh, as I always want to say every single dollar that we raise from all of our events, all of our fundraising events goes to support the programs and services that the foundation offers to individuals and families on their journey to defeat an eating disorder, which is one of the most significant mental illnesses that we're facing in this province and countrywide. And requires, uh, I understand, extensive uh, um, long-term treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Most of them do. I think I've heard the term, you know, an eating disorder. If you're going to be successful in beating it, you are looking at a journey that could be upwards of seven years. And in some cases, Linda, people are going to live with their eating disorder all their life. So we need to be there to provide the supports. And uh, that, I can assure you, the foundation will continue to be. But we really need the support of people to come out and help us with fundraisers such as this one on October 21st. Masters Men and Friends Arts and Culture Center, great night of entertainment, 38 bucks, and you won't regret a single second of it. All right, super. Um, uh, Paul, really appreciate your call. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Linda. I really appreciate the time to be able to be able to promote this great cause. Alrighty. Have a great day. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, so the Concert of Hope at the Arts and Culture Center returning this year, October 21st, 8 p.m. Uh, get your tickets now. Uh, we're going to go now to Susan Guiney. Hello, Susan. Hi, Linda. How are you? I'm good. So I understand that um, uh, William is going to be, or Bill is going to be trying to resume his journey now this weekend? Well, we were planning on that, but I think we're going to put it off till September 25th. Bill's health, uh, first he had like shin splints, and uh, I don't know if anybody, well, I'm sure there's lots of people know what shin splints are like. It can be a prolonged recovery for that, and he started to get better, and then he tried to get back to regular routine, and he found it hurting him. And also, he has like a little bit of a sore back, so he's thinking he should wait until September 25th, but we want to thank everybody for their continuous support and all the well wishes they've been sending to him. Uh, we're, we're, this is his eighth annual uh, fundraiser for mental health, and uh, uh, this year the proceeds go towards, um, some go towards Rua and some go towards the Gathering Place, and as you know, they're charities that need uh, things I don't know if you're aware of Rua. Rua is a nonprofit organization that um, they they need attention to. They need more support and more funding to help with their uh, what they give to individuals in their community in their. Uh, I'm, I'm losing a word here <laughs> uh, in their organization. So. And everybody's aware of the gathering place and how much uh, people have supported them all through, as far as I can remember, we've been great supporters of them too, uh, collecting on the southern shore. But this year, we're going to put a third towards them, a third towards Rua, and a third towards 
the publishing of Bill's book. And the book will be stories that he's gathered for the past eight years and all the walks and different things he's done and uh, the money will go towards the proceeds of the book will go towards Rua and the Gathering Place. So what is Rua? This is the first time I've heard of it. Rua is, I wish I had the card right in front of me. Um, Rua is a nonprofit organization down on the, it's called the Lantern. Of course, I don't have a card. Yes, of course, yeah, the Lantern. Yeah, and they're a nonprofit organization that do counseling to um, 16 year old and on up, I think, and like, they, it's to help out with people who cannot um, afford to get counseling. So I, I, Kim Kelly is the one that would be here to, to talk to you. Of course, I can't find anything right now. <laughs> no, that's fair. I don't yeah. want to put you on the spot, my dear. Don't you worry about that. Uh, but no. basically, uh, what uh, Bill has been doing and his passion uh, for the last eight years is to raise funding and awareness uh, uh, for mental health and getting people the supports that they need. So he's been doing these walks for a while now. And I understand he started on the Irish, Irish Loop back on on September the 1st until he developed those darn shin splints. Yes, and then, of course, the very first night, we had a frost warning, so he had a terrible night. He was so cold the whole night. But um, he got through it, and we'll continue to get through all the different things we're facing. And, you know, everything doesn't go as smooth as you would like. You know, you, you think it's going to go smoother than, than that. Um but we're able to face everything. And oh, indeed. And if, he's, if it's about fundraising and it's about awareness, well, he's still getting it. Yes, he is. And he will continue this. He said, like, he's just determined to finish this walk. And he wanted to do it this Monday. But he thinks with his doctor, the doctor telling him that he shouldn't overdo it because he's going to run into more problems. So, And we've both been through... Um, uh, health conditions and surgeries in the past that probably resulted to, you know, some of this health problems that we're having right now. So we're, but we're determined we'll get it done eventually. And I'll make a post now on Facebook um, and let them know that the walk will continue on Saturday. And if we run into problems, we'll figure it out. We will figure it out. And we've already started planning next year. <laughs> well, there you go. See, you're determined. I love it. Um, so, yeah, you'll you'll let people know through your Facebook group, as you've been doing for the last, uh, yeah. well, who knows how long, a long time now. Um, so you'll keep people informed. And if they want to support the cause, they're certainly welcome to do so, I'm sure. Yes. And I hope you get the opportunity to speak to Kim Kelly or uh, Amelia down at Rua and talk to them about their, fund, their, their organization. There are wonderful people that are there to help people out in any uh, of their crisis growing up. Like, you know, it's just wonderful. We were so glad. Kim is a, um, a childhood friend of mine, and I'm so glad we connected to one another. And I wish I had the right wording to say and encourage. I encourage you to reach out to Rua and find out what their organization is all about. For sure. And I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think I've spoken with Kim before. But um, Susan, really appreciate this. Uh, all the best to you and Bill and, and keep us up to date. I will so, Linda. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. All right. Thank you. Have a good weekend. You too. 
Bye-bye. Um, when we come back after the break, we're going to speak with the MHA for Bonavista, Craig Party. This is Open Line, the numbers to call right after this. And we're back. We're going now to the MHA for Bonavista, Craig Party. Hello, Craig. Hello, Linda. Good morning to you. Good morning to you as well. Uh, Linda, I'd uh, like to start off with some good news before I get into the EI issue in the um, in the district of Bonavista, if I may. Absolutely. Uh, Saturday passed. Uh, we had the cancer relay at, held at Cabot Stadium in Bonavista. Uh, they began that effort or the the relay for life um, on or in 2019. Since 2019, they raised over $240,000 for Daffodil Place, and that doesn't include this year. So each year, from the District of Bonavista, you will have fifty to sixty thousand dollars that will go in support of Daffodil Place, um, and which I find is astounding uh, from our area, and we're all very, very proud of it. I just want to give a shout out to everyone involved. Um, the organizers would be Bonnie Keel, Joan Sweetland, and Harvey Moland. But in saying that, they will be the first ones to say that it's a team effort. There are 19 teams that usually do fundraising throughout the year. It culminates with the relay event at, uh, you know, at Cabot Stadium, and that's where the, the culminates that year, sort of their, their fiscal year end. I don't know what the figure would be for this year, but I know that, again, we're very proud of what we contribute to Daffodil Place. And, in fact, uh, Harvey Molan as an MC for that event, had mentioned that there were 3,200 nights that were availed of in Daffodil Place uh, by residents in the district of Bonavista. And that is, that's very significant. One thing in the event was that they had the survivor's lap, where everyone dons their yellow shirt, those survivors were cancer, and they walk around, and their names are introduced when they go around. What is uplifting about uh, that is that everyone, probably bar none, talk about the exceptional treatment that they've had when they when they are fighting cancer, and that speaks well to our system. When you get in there, you are treated fantastically, and um, many would say no room for improvement. And the other thing is that the technology now and the uh, the skill set we have the early diagnosis. And I'm thinking that's a part of the uh, attributing to the high numbers that we would have during the relay. So I just wanted to give a shout out, Linda, to that. And I, I just think that from an area sometimes that we may struggle to think that fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year is coming out to support cancer um, is phenomenal. And I just want to give, like I said, now to uh, shout it from the treetops. Yeah, for sure, it, it deserves to be shouted. That's a that's extraordinary for a for an area of that population. Yes, it is. It is, and, and like I said, now uh, the energy seems to be building. You know, when you look at from one year to the next, uh, this year looked bigger than what it was last year. So, you know, it is something we're very proud of. And I'm sure there's other charities and other needs that are being addressed as well, but this is certainly one that uh, that stands out and deserves a lot of credit. For sure. Now, you yeah. wanted to touch on EI as well. Yes. Um, the constituency office is, is in Bonavista. Um, this past week, I've had several. And 
several the week before that would come in concerned that they do not have enough EI benefits in order to get them through the opening of the plant for next year. Now, when we look at EI and its place in our society and our, our economy, there are not many other choices that we would have on the District of Bonavista over the course of the winter for the population that we would have there. Thus, the EI system would have different zones. And I know it's complicated. I think you might have referenced it in your preamble, Linda, this morning. So Newfoundland and Labrador would have two zones. We'll have St. John's and we'll have Newfoundland and Labrador outside the Avalon. Because we know it's distinctly different. The availability of employment would be distinctly different uh, from the Avalon to the Bonavista Peninsula. So what has happened was that the unemployment rate or the employment rate has, has risen, the unemployment rate has dropped. And every time they drop and reach a certain benchmark, uh, the divisor gets bigger. So we moved from um, over this summer, while the plant was in session in Bonavista, close to 400 employees, uh, we moved from a divisor of 14 to now a divisor of 16. And you know that if you increase the divisor, then you get less benefits. You get less term. So what we have now is that with 16 there, we have a lot of our employees are not going to get enough EI in order to get back to the opening of the plant. I know many people will look at, you know, EI and, and we can have a debate on EI, but I, that plant in Bonavista, we have another one that would be in, in Princeton, they produce or process in excess of 12 million pounds of product for our province all local employees. And there's not many plants on the island now that would have all local employees. It's a big employer for our, for our province and for our, uh, our district. But the, the, the unfortunate part is the changes in the EI system now is going to leave them with a large gap that they're, they envision that they don't know what they're going to be able to do. So when I, uh, when I mention about zones, we have two in Newfoundland and Labrador. And Linda, you know our geography. You know how we were settled in Newfoundland and Labrador. We're stretched all over every piece of geography we, we practically have. We have two zones. Quebec would have 12 zones. Nova Scotia would have three. New Brunswick, three. And if you look at, again, our geography, I would say to you, the one zone that we have outside of the Avalon does not suffice. If we look at, it, say, the employment level, whether it be on the Bonavista Peninsula, where, where basically it's the fishery, versus some other areas of the province outside of the Avalon, it's a difficult comparison, especially when we look at the availability of work. For sure. All I would say is that the system, especially now, is failing uh, those workers and those that would be involved with the fishery on the Bonavista Peninsula. And it's something that I think that um, the Premier, he's often said that he has a good relationship with the Prime Minister, and I would think that this should be an issue of which he ought to be front and centre and reaching out in order to address the issue with the EI to make sure that we don't have those large gaps, like two to three months. That's what we're talking about, and a massive number of people. So 
I just wanted to get that in and know that we need people to step up. We need our, I know Cliff Small was on um, talking about the issue, but we do need our members, uh, our federal members, as well as our provincial government to step up to the plate and find a remedy instead of leaving these people to believe that all of a sudden they're going to have two to three months in the district without uh, employment opportunities. Yeah, and what happens then? Uh, you know, uh, people will do what they have to do uh, to keep food on their table and a roof over their heads. Um, yep. So, uh, you know, what are the long-term impacts of all of this? Well, if, if the system is not adjusted, you're looking at a couple of options. One is that you try to find employment somewhere else that you've got to travel. And, and we know many new finders do that. These, if they find if they find employment somewhere else on the mainland that they do, uh, then I would say that I'm not sure what that does for the processing of the 12 million pounds of product that we put out in the in the district of Bonavista. So we've got a workforce there. That plant churns along uh, very efficiently in Bonavista. So we don't want to jeopardize our workforce. The other thing that the province would say, well, we've got the social safety net. We've got income support. And never before did these people have to go on income support because the EI system reflected the availability of employment and, and what they've had. And, and again, they were fine with the divisor of 14. With the divisor of 15 or 16, it, it, it's really missing the mark for them. So those are the two options that they would have. But I'm sure the premier can meet with, uh, you know, with uh, the prime minister and look at those zones and see what they can tweak. And before he can go in to drill down on what the zones should be represented on this mass geography that we have, then we should go back to 14 as a divisor, which the FFAW has been calling and the Newfoundland Federation of Labor. Go back to 14 until we get it resolved to make sure we've got a system that represents everybody. Craig Party, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Pleasure okay. to speak with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, we're up to news time now with uh, Brian Medore. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And we're back into the final half hour of the program. If you'd uh, tried earlier and couldn't get through, now is your chance to give us a call. We're going to go now to James Kellaway. Hello, James. Yes, good morning to you, Linda. How are you this morning? Number one. I want to say good morning to you and, and all the listeners out there this morning. Um, I'm a former contractor for school buses. Um, I've been on the news before. I've been talking to you the last time we spoke a few months ago. Um, I, know I, was, I know I really don't want to be on open line talking about school buses again, but it, they're giving me no choice, Linda, what, what, what's going on. There was an incident yesterday at Brookside down in St. Phillips. Um, there was highway patrol down there um, taking the plates off of school buses with no no wording on the buses to indicate what, who owned the buses or anything. But they weren't licensed for the road, Linda. And that bothers me. You know, it bothered me when when the rear end came off the bus there. You know, I was at buses for 30 years. Anything like that never, ever happened to me in 30 years of my uh, you know, I was good enough for 30 years to operate school buses, but 
Eastern School District decide that I was uh, incompetent or something, but and and I was I was free of all charges when I did go to court. I was never charged. I was charged with lots of incidents, but nothing proved that I'd done any anything wrong. But here today, you know, I, I just said to myself, Jim, you know, you got to speak out. And and you mean the head bosses down there at Brookside I mean not licensed for the road? Come on. Where are you? How are you, you know, hearing are, that uh, that they weren't licensed? I was passing along and I was speaking to one of the officers. They told me the buses weren't licensed and they're taking the plates off them. And I said, you got to be joking. I know these guys. I spent 30 years, Linda, of my life in school buses. I know everything about a bus. There's nothing I don't know about a school bus. But I do know in the contract, buses are supposed to be identified by the name on the side of the bus, Linda. Why isn't that like? Why isn't that done? Why isn't that these buses were at the end of August in the contract? If you if they read the contract in the contract, the end of August, all your paperwork, Linda, is supposed to be in. But why why are children our precious cargo? Everybody's precious cargo. You, you mean? I think it's more about my kids than anything in the world. And everybody else feel the same way out there, and all your listeners, I'm sure. But why are they? Why are those on buses that's not licensed for the road and, and the highway patrol down there? I mean, who's not doing their work down at the school? The, the, the NLSD. We're what's going to have going to get some, what, um, what, yeah, we're going to have to get some on? clarification from Service yeah. NL because uh, yeah. we received calls yesterday from parents saying, you know, what's going on with the buses at uh, Prince of Wales and at Brookside? Yeah, and okay, there's another school involved. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but that was a separate issue as far as I understand. But uh, okay, um, well, I'm not familiar with that, Linda. The uh, English school district uh, got back to us and said, uh, in the case in Brookside, uh, it says the district was made aware of on site bus inspections by Service NL. Some buses were delayed in taking students home and one bus was unable to bring students home at Beachy Cove as a result of the inspection. So I don't know if that's the same issue you're talking about or if it's a yes, separate exactly. issue or what. No, no. The, the truth is, Linda, those school buses that were hauling children to school yesterday morning were not licensed for the road. And I don't know if they're insured or inspected for the road. And and listen, I'm I'm just calling out, and and don't mean I'm not in. I'm retired from buses right now. The Eastern School District retired me because I, I was good good enough for 30 years, but I'm no I'm not a good contractor now for some reason. But they got a lot of contracts owned by one person in the city. I'm not giving out any names or anything. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. And listen, school buses are not taxis. Okay, they're not taxis, and they're and they need to be inspected properly. And, it, and when I was in the bus business, it took me from June. I'd start in June and right to right to the end of August, and and that can be verified at motor registration. It, and I'd have thirty or forty, fifty buses on the road. It'd take me the whole summer and my staff to get those buses ready and have the paperwork in Linda. And we're not allowed on the road. Those buses, I don't know how they got on the road without being checked by uh, NLSD. What, what's going on? Who, who's not doing their job? Come on, buses and uh, buses are, are something that's priority. You you call in the motor registration and you say anything about a bus. That's where every everybody that's in this province. If you got an issue with a bus, you call motor registration. Do not call that school board, because your your word of whatever happened between the school bus is definitely not being heard. 
it's been true underneath a desk. I don't know what's going on. But listen, there's too many too many bosses for one contractor, and there's no way he can fulfill. And I'm not saying that nothing about the person. Everybody is a good person in my eyes. There's nobody really bad. But there's too many bosses owned by one one contractor. And he cannot fill. He uh, don't have the facilities, Linda. You got to have the facilities, just like like Gladney's are off the road there right now. And Gladney's had had trouble with Terry Hall. I listened to him there, there months ago. Gladney's had trouble with their paperwork. Their paperwork. So where, where's the paper? Gladney's are off the road now. And they're in court, being 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 sued by the, the by Gladney's. And and here now, there's another contractor without being the bosses put on the road, not licensed for the road. What's going on? All right, James, you're asking some pretty good questions. We'll see if we can get well, those answers. I, I'm just phoning it right now as, as a person out there uh, that that just fed up with this this system that what they got down there. It's not. It's definitely not working. You I mean there's. There's something wrong. When you put children aboard a bus not licensed or probably not inspected for the road, what's going on with, with, with this system? We'll try to get some more answers from the English School District and from Service NL. I really appreciate yes, your call this morning, of, James. they got a lot of answers and, and, to, to do, and, and I mean, people are not doing their jobs, obviously. They're not doing their jobs, and we got our children aboard those buses, and, and rear ends coming off the bus, Linda. Come on. You mean to tell me a driver never heard something going on with that rear end, and that, that, that you just see the damage of, of last year's vote? I, I'm, I'm still can, uh, excuse Watch me. Watch your I, language. I, I just, I just, I just can't believe that that would happen. And children aboard the bus. Yeah. No, I, I hear your frustration. That's the one you're talking about in Mount Pearl where the rear axle just yes. came clear off of yes. it. Yeah. I never see it happen in my life. Never see it happen. And I drove buses down from the mainland, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of buses in my lifetime. And I never, ever had something like that happen. No, you, you mean, you, you know, and then the, the, what happened yesterday, I'm just devastated. I can't believe it. All right, James, yeah. we'll leave it there. We'll see what they, uh, what kind of answers we can get. I really appreciate your time. I Thank you. I can't wait to listen to the show and see see what they're going to come up with. Thank All right. You, you have a nice day, and your listeners, thanks for listening. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. And we are back. We are going to go to the caller on line three. Hello. Hi, Linda. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. Um, it's Marilyn Rowe calling from the Port of Work Peninsula. I just wanted to call in today to talk about the proposed wind turbine project for our area. Yes. Uh, initially, it was uh, 164 turbines on the peninsula, uh, but the EIS was just released a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so we found out in the EIS that it's 145 on the peninsula and 26 on Pine Tree Hill or port port East, so a total of 171 for the area. Um, so I want to talk about the, the issues that we have with this proposal. Um, one, the turbines are, you know, industrial offshore turbines. Uh, they have not been put on uh, mountaintops before. 
Uh, I don't know if they were even put on land before. I, I can't find any projects in, in the world that they've been put on land. Um, so there's no data for these turbines, and there lies the problem. I mean, if there's no data to go by, how do we know what the effects will be? Um, so we're like sitting ducks here, and um, you know, people are really anxious. They're stressed, and and we've been, you know, uh, trying to uh, you know get to the bottom of this and and get a a federal assessment of this project because the effects of such a huge project in a small area will be uh, life changing for the four thousand people that live here. So what potential impacts are you most concerned about, uh, the, the answers that you want, like the, the, the answers to the questions that you have? What, what are you most concerned about? Okay, well, uh, like I said, these are going to be put on mountaintops. That ha- this hasn't happened anywhere in the world before. So uh, the potential health effects would be shadow flicker. And in the EIS, it shows that 11 of the homes in my community, I'm calling from the community of Sheaves Cove, uh, 11 homes in our area will be exposed to shadow flicker. So that's when, you know, the sun uh, reflects off of the the blades of the turbines. So it's that, it's the, the vibrations from the turbines themselves as they're running. And, you know, we get a lot of southwest winds here. So where the turbines will be located will be right in the in the uh, line of fire, I'll, I'll say. Um, they uh, want to use 8 million pounds of emulsified explosives for the project. And, um, you know, we are living right next door to uh, the mining operation, CMEX Materials, formerly Atlantic Minerals. They are a limestone quarry. Uh, so we're subject to explosives and, and um, you know, every week they, they have, uh, they're, they're blasting in the mountaintops here. So we're, we're used to having explosives and our, our basements are cracked already. Uh, I can't imagine. Imagine uh, another 8 million pounds on top of what we are already experiencing. Um, But if you look at the wildlife, I mean, 250 kilometers of roads is what they're proposing through the center of our peninsula. Our peninsula is about 10 kilometers wide by like 26 long, maybe a little bit longer, but I mean, that's the size of it with 4,000 people living here. And I mean, it's, it's scary to think about how much trees will be destroyed, how much land will be cleared, how the animals will be affected, how our lives will be affected. Because if you have people, 1,500 workers going off and on the peninsula, um, you know, how are we going to get in and out? And and the roads are deplorable. I mean, you have to swerve to, to go around the potholes, and every year the lines in the roads are getting narrow and narrower because they're taking in more of the road because they don't fix the, the sides of the roads. So, you know, our roads are going to be ruined. Our environment is going to be ruined. I mean, we're, we're worried about our water, what this gonna, how it's going to affect our watersheds. And in in the last couple of months, we've seen uh, in like large sightings of lynx, minks, everything. And hello. 
I'm Linda? listening, yep. Okay, okay, I, I, okay, I wasn't sure. And um, it, it's from the explosives um, in the mountains, what they were they were drilling for uh, a Met Tower in mainland, and we've seen so many sightings of lynx and minks and weasels that we've never, ever witnessed ever. Driving them out. Peninsula. It's driving them out. So that's just from one Met Tower. That's a wind measuring tower. So can you imagine what it's going to do to the wildlife when you have, you know, 171 of these turbines? So, well, certainly there are there yeah. are legitimate questions to be asked about the footprint of these types of projects. Um, and, you know, these are fueling uh, private enterprise, um, you know, uh, so there are a lot of uh, big questions that need to be asked about the footprint. Um, I've seen these turbines in other jurisdictions. Uh, they are massive. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, it's not just, you know, what you see. It, Like you say now, it's the, it, I didn't know about this, um, this uh, flicker you're talking about, but it makes uh, abundant sense that, uh, you know, there would be changes in, in the light caused by the yeah. movement of these huge blades. Yes. I spoke to a man, John Mayfield. I actually have a video up on our ETC website. If you go into the uh, Environmental Transparency Committee website uh, on the Port of Port Peninsula, I have a video that I did with a John Mayfield from Nova Scotia. And he lived uh, 1.5 kilometers from a turbine. And he said that, you know, he can't go outside in the summertime uh, when the shadow flicker is on because it's... It, it, uh, it makes them feel dizzy and uh, unwell. And we're going to be uh, a kilometer away from these massive turbines. His are, uh, I think, like um, 80 or 90 meters in height. And ours is going to be, you know, like uh, over 600 feet. So the difference, I mean, the, his are babies compared to what we're going to see. Um you know, and, and then uh, Andrew Parsons was on last week talking about, oh, uh, you know, we've been in this industry for years. I mean, look at Ramia. Well, if you look at Ramia, I mean, those turbines are little dinghies. They're like, compared a dinghy to uh, a Ute truck. I mean, the size comparison and of this scale, no, there's only what? I don't even know what, if they're even operating anymore in Ramia. There's probably two or three. And to compare that to 145 in this populated area is nonsense. I mean, I would expect better from a minister of uh, energy. Um, but, you know, I, I'm calling him out. I, I want him to show us, tell us where in the world that these massive turbines are located on mountaintops and show me the data because in their EIS, all their data is outdated by at least 10 years. So, you know, if you're going to try to convince us that this project is good for an area, you better come up with some updated data. Marilyn, I have to leave it there. We're almost out of time. I, I yep. do appreciate your call, though, this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Alrighty. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, any thoughts on what she's had to say? We'll have to leave it for another day. But in the meantime, uh, our last uh, call of the day will go to Tony. Hello. Yes, Linda, how are you? I think you were last call yesterday as well. Yes. I'm just going, if I just want to speak, uh, first I just want to like to say that about the, the race, PC leadership race, uh, they got going on right now. I mean, 
Uh, we got three great guys. I support Lloyd Parrott when he announced yesterday, last year because of, if you ever listen to him in the house and, the, and the, the passion he shows for the people of this province is unreal. And I talked to Lloyd, and I met, and the reason I support him, not only because of the passion he shows and he's an honest man, but that what he got, the, like I asked him all kinds of questions from the fishery to our health care to to the seniors, to everybody, like the education, the special needs children, everyone. And the passion he got is unreal. And not only do he got, he don't li- he listens, but he also got a plan for it. And that's what was impressive for me. And like I had known, he, he was, I told him, I asked him questions. Then I said, you know, if, if you don't hold up to my, an- like to the end that I answered, then I want to support you when you go in, I'll, I'll go against you. And he appreciated everything I had to say. And the guy is, he's so honest and down to earth. And he just, he just fights. He wore a uniform for this problem for thirty for twenty years. He's a and he got scared to prove it. And he was so proud every day. And now he's he putting on another uniform for to support the problems because we need somebody and we need a leader, a man that's lead, that's leading, going to lead the problems. And I will tell you one thing, he's he's got the answers and he's the man. Like he is, you want he will not be disappointed for for vote for Lloyd Parrott. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, I want to. Uh, Say, but the interest rate and the mortgages. Last year, I think if you had a one-year mortgage last year and you renewed it last year with the interest rate, I think it went up around seven hundred dollars uh, every four weeks. So now this year, it's going up an extra. That's if you had two thousand dollar mortgage, and if you're paying every two weeks, it's going up an extra two hundred seventy-five dollars every two weeks if you renewed your mortgage this year. I mean, how in God's name can anybody afford an extra twelve hundred dollars, over twelve hundred dollars, uh, in a matter of one year? Like, there's nobody can afford it. Well, that's the crux and, of all uh, the discussions that are happening right now. It's it's alarming. Anybody who uh, is carrying a mortgage uh, is um, is very concerned. Yes, I mean, it's just unreal. I mean, people are losing their homes just every other day. You've got people on the street now, and they, they built less homes this last year than they did back in 1972. And we only had a population then of uh, 22 million. Now we got a population of 39 million, and now you see Trudeau coming up with a plan that's going to build 2,000 houses in London, Ontario. But the only quirk was it was announced that the, the plan was for to build 6,000 this year in London, Ontario. So he's down by 4,000, and so he announced this last year. And it took about a year or a year and a half ago, and it took about a year and a half ago just to get the paperwork done. So I mean, he's he's right now because this same thing when he got in first, he announced the plan he was going to have housing. Then six years ago he canceled it, but now he's so bad in the polls that uh, he had to come up with something else again. I mean, he just uh, like he don't stand by anything he says. All right, Tony. I mean, yeah, we're out of time. Anyway, Linda, have all right, then you have a great you have a great weekend. All right, you as well. Mm, bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for us on Open Line today. Thanks, everyone, for your contributions to the show. Uh, lots of interesting conversation. Uh, Patty is uh, scheduled to be back on Monday, so do join him then. In the meantime, uh, here comes our VOCM news package with all the news of the day. And uh, stay tuned for News Talk this afternoon. VOCM's Richard Duggan will be hosting In My Stead. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great and safe weekend.